When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here's what's coming up on this edition of Next Big Trade. Enjoy the show. Yes, in a perfect world, it'd be great if we were all green energy and there was no carbon emissions, but there's got to be a transition. It's going to take many years to get there. We're probably not going to meet the goals, but bitching about it and saying no isn't the solution either. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Next Big Trade. I'm your host, Harry Malandri from MI2 Partners. Enjoy the show. Transparency is of utmost importance to us. We want to make it clear from the outset that today's guest, Marion Katusa, is the co-chair of the board of directors of Carbon Royalty Corp. He's also one of the largest individual shareholders of Carbon Streaming Corp. Marion arranged financing for and is a shareholder of Uranium Royalty Corps. He's a shareholder of Uranium Energy Corps. He's a large shareholder of Osisco Development Corps, and his wife sits on the Osisco Development Board of Directors. It's great to have an insider's perspective, and these types of personal stakes come with the territory. Marion eats his own cooking, so you should think hard about whether you want to eat his cooking too. And really, for me, I like to listen to the arguments. Welcome to the next big trade. Thanks for joining us. This week, we are joined by Marion Katusa of Katusa Research, one of the largest independent financiers in the resource sector and one of the largest independent researchers in the resource sector as well. He has been in the business for 20 years and has written two best-selling books, which is two more than me. Actually, you've written two books more than me. Not just It's not just a question of best-selling. Um, Marion, it's a pleasure to meet you. How are you? Good. It's a pleasure to be here. So... Um, Usually I ask someone what they have their eye on other than their core thesis because, you know, there's a lot going on in the world right now and sometimes you might be looking at something other than your core business because you think it's just generally fascinating or compelling or disastrous. What are you looking at, right? What's keeping you awake at night or keeping you glued to your screens? Um so a couple of years ago, I wrote a book, my second one, called The Rise of America. And, and there's in, in the resource world, and that's all I am, right? Like I'm a resource guy. And there's this belief that all that matters is China. And everyone's kind of thrown in the towel that America's a shit show and it's a place that is just backwards and its best days are behind it. And after traveling the world for over 20 years for work, you know, I've been there and done it. Like if anyone's been there and done it, I can truly say from Middle East to Africa, across South America, and at the end of the day, when I look at my track record, the biggest scores are rarely going to be in Ecuador or Argentina or the DRC or somewhere, you know, that sounds cool to read and sell newsletters where, you know, you're, you're going on horseback in the middle of a jungle with no infrastructure, no rule of law, because all those things are going to come haunt you later on when you actually find something and then you have to build it. And my thesis is very, very, very simple, Harry. It's go to the biggest projects in the world, so scale, 
where you have a rule of law. Most importantly, if you're going to develop a, a resource project, it is a hell of a lot easier to develop something that has already been a major mine. And if you have great as king, metallurgy as queen, and OPM, other people's money. So for example, you go to a, like the biggest producing gold mine in America's history was Homestake in South Dakota. So when the world shut down in 2020, in May, a group of us, myself, a couple of mining geologists, a couple of engineers, we booked a private plane. We were the first team in Canada to get an exemption to fly out of the country. When all the planes were down, we had to go private. And we went and struck a deal on this project because the thesis was very simple. Here's a very high grade, major producer, produced over 40 million ounces of gold. And it was just sitting there with all this infrastructure. And it's never seen modern technology for over 20 years. Technology and mining's significantly advanced in the last 20 years. So if you can go after something like that, why the hell do you want to take the risk of going somewhere where you need securities? And I call it AK-47 nations. It's cool if you're 26 and you want to do a selfie and, you know, impress your friends. It's not cool for your portfolio. You know, that's that's a pretty compelling argument. And it's true. I've never, I've not really made a lot of money in places where the rule of law is, um, uh, quite, actually, I say that, I kind of have. The best scores I've ever made were in Russia, actually. And nobody's ever said that the rule of law in Russia was was sacrosanct or paramount. It's quite the opposite. Depends which side of the uh, it depends on what side of the law you are there. Well, you gotta you gotta you're it's best if you and the judge are at school together. Let's put it like that. And um, but you know, still the right time and the right place, stuff can work. Um, even in 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 places like Russia. But I do take your point. Um, you do need scale to really hit, get a good score. And who would want to put down a huge block of cash in a jurisdiction which might just take it away with a blink of an eye? I, I definitely can see that. So I guess the question is, what is the next big trade? What are you looking at as the best way of, 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 of accumulating, of, of hitting the ball out of the park in the next 10 years? If your time frame is 10 years, I think two things, like, look, five years ago, I was on the show, Raul's an old buddy of mine, you know, drinking in Napa, uh, and I was slamming the table on uranium, and people would laugh. Well, today, you know, look, both of my books had a chapter about uranium and nuclear energy and where it's going. That's played out now, right? Like, everything that's happened there, and, and it's going to do well, but it's not cheap anymore. So you have to look at cheap with big upside de-risking. And there's no doubt about it. Gold is cheap today. Now, not the metal gold. Gold is, I don't know, $1,725 US an ounce. I'm not saying the metal is cheap. I'm saying the producers and why are they cheap? I have no interest in taking exploration risk. I'm not a explorationist. My wife is a geologist. Uh, I'm around many close friends in geology, but I want to get the upside for free. I don't want to pay for upside. And today in the gold market, you could buy producing mid-tiers for literally like we did in uranium five years ago for 30 cents on the dollar, and you get all that exploration upside for free. But why is it cheap? Well, because the miners capex, you know, inflation has gone way out of the way. That'll take care of itself. Number two, gold's out of favor, right? Nobody really cares about investing gold. Number three, 
What's really interesting and a lot of people don't understand is so many of these mining companies are listed in Canada and the big index funds in the US can't buy them and they're not listed on what I call the big league exchanges of the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ. So you look at some of these companies and most of the gold, remember there's the old saying, God created gold, but the devil took it and spread it around. They're in shitholes that you and I have literally no interest in investing significant amounts of money because you know it's going to be stolen. And I get into things called negative swap lines and all that in my book about that. And I don't want to take those risks. And most of the exploration and development of gold resources, and most resources over the last 20 years have been in the emerging markets go to where the gold is. But yet you have some of the highest grade, largest endowments of gold in America with infrastructure, with power. You know, people will laugh about this in, in Utah. People forget that one of the largest copper mines in the world, Bingham Canyon, is in Utah. Well, just 40 kilometers south of that is something called Tintic, owned by a company that just listed on the New York Stock Exchange called the Cisco Development. I'm a huge shareholder. I'm also down like 50% on my money. That's another thing people are going to have to be aware in the resource sector. It's super volatile. So it's not like I'm talking my book. Uh, I, I say what I invested in, but this thing is the highest grade operating gold mine in the world. And here's the crazy part of it. It's been operating on and off for over 120 years. And this is going to sound crazy and it may come across, but I'm saying this with greatest intention and respect as a Canadian. I've been to site a few times. I was one of the first guys underground when they found this T2 structure, which is the highest grade uh, operating gold in the world. Most of the employees are these, you know, I'll call them the corn-fed, tough Mormons. And there's this amazing culture on site. They have the lowest LTIs. When you go to a job site, is it clean? Uh, what are the LTIs? And there's a correlation to well-run, low LTI, low low time incidences, so, you know, the guys don't get hurt. So help me out here. What's an LTI? I'm, I'm, I'm an innocent bond trader. Never. Yeah, so lost time incidences. So, you know, how many hours did guys lose because they got hurt? And there's a correlation between the highest operating profitable gold mines and the lowest LTIs. And when you go to site, is it organized? Is it clean? Is it safe? Safe and organized also requires very profitable. I've been to so many mines that are just sloppy and it's an accident waiting to happen. And, and then you see, geez, it's low cash flow, low margins. So these are the little things you see. The spirit at the sites, it's incredible. Uh, the technology, modern technology coming in. This mine has been producing for over 100 years, but its main priority was to provide flux, which is basically uh, a quartz material to blend with Bingham Canyon, which is one of the largest copper producers just 40 miles north. So the smelters can separate the copper and the gold and all the other items. The old timers got paid to produce absolute clean flux. It's some of the highest, cleanest flux in the world right there in Tintic. And then this green stuff Right beside it, eight feet away, the old timers missed the highest grade operating gold mine by eight feet because they didn't get paid to produce green stuff. They got produced to produce white stuff. So you look at these technologies now, uh, same thing with Homestake in South Dakota. That company's called Dakota Gold, run by Bob Quartermain, New York Stock Exchange listed company. So for me, it's got to be listed on a big league exchange. It's got to have scale. I don't want one or two million ounces. It's got to have tens of millions of ounces potential grade. It has to be in the highest quartile of grade because grade is king. And I want simple metallurgy. So can I separate the gold from the rock? Metallurgy is queen. And I love OPM, 
other people's money. If you look at, for example, what a Cisco development has in uh, Utah, there's over $500 million of existing infrastructure works that the company doesn't have to pay for because it's been built over the last many decades. That's $500 million that this management team doesn't have to build that you'd have to do on a new discovery in Ecuador. And by the way, there's no discoveries in Ecuador, South America, or Africa at this plus one ounce grade at the mine. So that's kind of the gold side. And then I'll throw the most controversial commodity that I've ever been involved with, I think, if you're young and you want to take a real interest is carbon credits. I think it's the the place to be. I think it's going to outperform cryptos. And that's a bold statement for Raul's crowd. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. I, I, yeah, I think it's it's dangerous to say that things will outperform crypto for Raul's crowd. You're just going to get yourself in a in a bad place. Um, I'm doing a tongue-in-cheek tongue to kind of get it going. You're, you're a brave man. I, I never offend crypto guys because they te- they're so passionate. I... Uh, what can I say? I have Slavic heritage. We're not scared of much. Uh, what can I say? I have Jewish heritage, and I uh, I avoid trouble. <laughs> what can I say? I avoid trouble. So, um, so I'm I'm very interested in the carbon credit stuff. I'm long of carbon credits myself. Today was a painful day. I'm not sure. There's all, all sorts of good reasons why carbon should have gone down today. Oil prices went down, for example. It tends to be well correlated with energy prices. Um, there's talk about delinking. European electricity prices from gas prices, and 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 I think also the Polish Prime Minister or President, I think mean Prime Minister, but somebody gave a speech where they talked about a freeze on carbon. Should we worry about this if you're into the carbon trade? I, I don't, and I'll explain why. the The Polish government has been saying that same argument for 15 years because look what their sources of energy are. So you got that situation. Um, I personally don't feel that investing in the European market is a place that I have an advantage in, so I don't do that. That's a compliant, bureaucratic uh, thing that's going to shift with the political winds. Uh, What I'm focusing on is the U.S. market, again, and it's not what the governments are saying. Look what the boards are mandating by corporations and the board members, the executives. Uh, they're not going to get their bonuses unless they meet the criteria of what they said they were going to do and these pledges that they've had because of the investors. And if you SEC is going to be mandating, and think about this, you look at all the big accounting firms, how are they going to grow their revenue? Well, you, you audit your financials, obviously, and you have to you know have audited financials. And like I said earlier to you, Harry, you know, 2020 to and beyond is the digitalization of pollution. You're going to have audited environmental liabilities. What is your footprint? And you're going to have to report that. And you're not going to get into these big funds that like the pension funds. For example, the largest fund in Canada is called the CPP, the Canadian Pension Plan. It's now on the front page. It it has to meet the criteria. You saw what Sweden and Norway are doing. Now, it's interesting. Texas and Florida are fighting BlackRock on their ESG um, standpoint. But this is going to evolve. And the corporations, for example, who is the world's largest investor in nature-based solutions? Shell. 
an oil company. It's not Greenpeace. It's not, you know, all these NGOs that are, you know, grandstanding and all that. It's an oil company. So you can sit there and take a piss on the oil companies, but we do need to have a transition and it takes everybody's participation. And there, and, and this is how small the market is. Think about this. Shell is the largest investor in the voluntary nature-based solutions globally, and it's only $100 million. That's less than what they'll drill in the Gulf of Mexico. That's nothing for a major company. So this is a very early stage. It's going to evolve. But just be very careful where you're investing. Things like NDCs, the naturally determined commitments. You know, where are you investing? What type of credits are you investing? Don't get caught up in, there's 68 different type of credits. There's different vintages of credits. It's like a wine auction. So go to places where you can get updated info like www.carboncredits.com. That's where I go in the morning to look at all the different prices. It's there for free and you get all these reports for free. You, there's a lot of data out there, but there's a lot of noise too. So just like in all investments, look for the right management teams that have skin in the game. What price are, if you're in at, you know, you're paying $10 and the management in are at a dollar. Are you aligned? Most, most likely not. But if you can get in as close as the price as the management and they have a pattern of success and they're going after big projects and they know what they're doing because they've done it before, that's where you want to invest. You know, I'm with you. I like the idea of the carbon credit trade. I see the logic of it. It's compelling to me. But one of the things that my European friends are doing is teaching me that there's political pressure and all sorts of dangers associated with this. And it's not, very few trades are without any kind of risk. Um, I'm starting to see the political risks associated with this. So for example, you just pointed out that you've got to expect Poland, which has massive incentives to fight against carbon pricing, to, to do its best to drop tape bombs on this. And there are two good reasons for that. One of which is the whole thing is bad for coal mining and coal mining is part, is part of, is, is in Poland's interests. Um, but the other side of it is if you're a Polish coal mining concern, you'd like to buy your carbon credits as cheaply as possible. Um, so every time the, a Polish politician tape bombs that market, you get a chance to buy some cheap carbon credits. Given I had a look uh, earlier today, one of my colleagues at MI2 dug up for me that uh, for coal emission, for coal now, 60% of the price of coal is now that carbon credit. Me personally, I think that's a wonderful thing. It's a great idea. We can take some. Well, hold on, Harry. So you you have to look at how that's calculated, and that that that's actually where my background is. So when someone makes a comment like that, is is that thermal coal? Is that lignite coal? Is that met coal? Met coal is used for steel. Poland had no problems taking the EU money to modernize and decarbonize their facilities, but now that they have to deliver what they said they're going to do, now they're going to piss and scream. Well, hey, you know, uh, that, that's kind of a catch-22. Number two, it comes down to your electricity price. You can't price it off of your tonnage of coal because you can manipulate your costs. You, when you do your carbon, and first of all, you're, what you're referring to is the EU ETS. It makes up less than, even at current prices, which is touching all-time highs, it's making less than 12% max on the electricity generation price. So it's nowhere near the input. Now, the price of coal for the input on the smelt on the on the actual utility the coal power plant 
the price of coal is about 65% of the electricity cost price, okay? And what you're referring to is EU ETS. I'm saying that that's one large market, but if you want to play a much bigger growing market where the Glencores of the world, which is, you know, the third largest commodity trader in the world, uh, Vital, all of the big commodity houses, all the banks are setting up desks, BlackRock, uh, just pr- uh, invested over 400 million into my friends, uh, Joe and Will's company called Expansive, which is the largest digital trader. They're kind of like the, the ice of carbon credits. The voluntary market is where I would focus on. So I don't, who gives a shit what Poland's doing? It's Poland. I've been to Poland many times. Go build something in Poland. They got great copper projects. A good friend of mine, Ross Beatty, has been stuck for 15 years with a copper project in Poland trying to deal with the permits. There's a reason why the Balkans in Eastern Europe is Eastern Europe. I come from that heritage, a large investor in that part of the world. It's still backwards. So if you're going to be focusing on the ETUS, you've got to focus on the bureaucracy. What I'm saying is totally different. The voluntary market and focus on the U.S. companies. I'm talking about the biggest companies in the world that have already stated, this is our corporate plan. We have to do this. So... Uh, first of all, uh, we are both of, uh, have some Eastern European heritage. I, I don't, I've spent some time there too. I don't find them particularly backward. I do think that go, go build a project there. <laughs> I'm telling I, you, I don't, know, I, I don't know if I'd really want to build a project there. So I'm not, I'm not disputing what you're saying. There are, there are political complexities everywhere, right? Um, and I, I, maybe those complexities are more difficult to deal with if you're coming in from outside to Eastern Europe. I don't think it's the friendliest investment environment in the world, but it's, everything's improving. People know people. It's hard to get stuff done. You've got to know the right people to get stuff done in many cases. I think in some respects, it's the same in the UK, uh, just to a different degree, perhaps. But the principle I'm making, the, princi- the, the problem I'm highlighting will be true everywhere, which is there's winners and losers in this, and some of the losers may well be extremely loud in, in complaining about what's happening. I, I take your point that maybe the, the better environment to do this is North America. Uh, because, you know, usually when rules get written, they don't get unwritten quickly. I say that, but that, you know, things are different in Texas sometimes. I'm with you. I can see where the wind is blowing. We have to do something about this. This is a relatively easy thing to do, but it is a transfer. Don't expect the losers to keep their mouths shut. They're going to complain. Oh, yeah. And even environmentalists, like you look at Greenpeace, they're anti-offsets, all all offsets. Well, yes, in a perfect world, it'd be great if we were all green energy and there was no carbon emissions, but as a large financier of windmills in Texas, Texas, it, as much as everyone wants to bash Texas as, you know, oil and gas, they're the Saudi Arabia of wind power in the U.S. Sure. They're the number one power uh, uh, producer of wind in the U.S. So there's got to be a transition. It's going to take many years to get there. We're probably not going to meet the goals, but bitching about it and saying no isn't the solution either. It's going to take all companies, not just, you know, the tech companies, which are doing a great job. You look what Google's doing and Apple and Facebook. Like Apple's a big investor in nature-based projects too. You see what they're trying to do. But the oil companies, we have to incorporate the resource companies and the steel producers are trying to switch to electric arc furnaces. But here's the reality. You know, it's expensive. So until, like, for example, you look at nuclear power. I've for years been saying this is not 
A uranium miner isn't necessarily a miner. It's part of the decarbonization, and the green side hated nuclear power. Now, the EU has stated in January 1st, 2023, nuclear and uranium meet the criteria for green energy. That means the big ETFs and the funds can buy those sectors, whereas up to January 1st, 2023, they were not allowed. So things change. Which, which is a highly political decision and upset a lot of people. Me personally, I'm in favour of nuclear. I think the technology has moved on. I think there are ways of implementing it which result in much lower risks. And uh, to some degree, needs must when the devil drives. We have a serious problem. And if we want baseload electricity, we need to find a solution to that problem. And uranium and nuclear presents a solution to the baseload problem that we currently have. It's part of the, it's part of the solution. Right. The, the real solution is a diversified energy matrix, right? That's where China's going. Look, 18% of China's uh, power comes from hydro. Well, with the record droughts, the risk here, what a lot of people don't realize, when you have a reservoir and it drops, now you have integrity risks to that reservoir. You know, China's got a whole slew of issues, and now they're fast-tracking the permits of all of these coal power plants because they have no choice. What are they going to do? And, you know, pre-Fukushima, I think there's something like 442 nuclear reactors. You know, then then Japan shut down all I think they had about 54, 52, somewhere around there. I can't remember the number. Shut them all down. Well, they have to bring them back. What are they going to do? It's it's part of the solution. And, you know, today, 7% of uh, Japan's power comes from nuclear. They've openly admitted by 2030 to meet their 2050 goal, they got to triple that, right? And they're bringing seven more reactors on. So they're going to have to build more reactors. There's there's over 50 reactors being built globally. So I agree with you, the new generation, we're in the Gen 4 nuclear reactors. And then you got the Gen 5, like, you know, Bill Gates is the big shareholder of Terra X. They're building the small modular reactors that don't produce waste. Remember, Gen 1, 2, and 3s do produce waste. And that is an issue that it needs to be dealt with. But like everything, once these reactors are built, you know, way more okay this is a very controversial topic because people argue about well you know how many people died from the cancer of you know chernobyl but from the direct emissions way more people have died at coal power plants than nuclear power plants i don't know how to calculate how many people died of cancer from chernobyl i don't know but you know there there's all sorts of risks to everything the key point is is things will evolve there's an argument that a lot of the asthma we see in the world around us is caused by diesel emissions from cars um, yeah, the apocalypse of China. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, you know, so I wanted to pull you back to the question of carbon credits before we moved on to the uranium question, and and because I don't know what the actionable trade is. I've got uh, European ETS, European Carbon Futures, ouch today. But what trade would you recommend for anyone listening to this podcast? I'm just going to say what I've done personally and what I've published over the last two years about this is I did a deep, deep study on the gold producers and uh, the two best bets in the gold sector would have been just to purchase two companies, Franco Nevada and Silver Wheaton. They are the two world's largest precious metal gold and streaming uh, precious metal company. So it's like a royalty and streaming model. And I took that thesis and say, well, you know, there's GLD, which is like an ETF, you could buy 
Carbon, KRBN, which is kind of an ETF easy for American investors to buy. Um, I don't really focus on the e European stuff. I think there's easier ways to make money as a North American, right? Um, so what I, my thesis was get into the royalty and streaming company. And again, scale, diversity of credits, diversify your political. And I don't want to be in any nation that is, you know, if you're not a G20, because what's going to happen here is with COP27 coming up, Article 6, remember, 196 countries agreed to the Paris Accord in 2015. If you're producing credits in a country, whatever country, call it India, and India, you've been producing these credits, India just came out and said, uh-uh, you can't sell those credits internationally until we meet our domestic NDC. So you have to study what was that NDC level commitment? Is it low, meaning easy to achieve, so your credits can cover that, and then you can sell three quarters at the international price, because your credits will trade lower if it's a smaller economy, for example, like the DRC or something, where you know it's not really a big economy. And I'm not picking on DRC specifically, I'm just saying you gotta be careful what was that country's NDC? Indonesia is another country. Great projects in Indonesia like Rimbaraya, which is probably the world's number one Red Plus project, but they halted it all. So you got to understand what is Indonesia's NDC. For the first five years, it's pretty low. So those credits, you know, you're still going to get closer to the international market because most of the credits will be sold out of the country. But if the NDC is high, you may be stuck in this domestic lower price, kind of like North American gas. ACO, which is the Alberta Edmonton price of gas in Canada, trades at like 25% of Henry Hub. Why? Because there's no infrastructure to get it out. And that's why it trades at such a low price. That's kind of what you're going to look at in certain regions for carbon credits. So you got to be aware of what type of credit. And there's many different types. My favorite are blue carbon credits because they store the carbon, they sequester that carbon for thousands of years under the water, whereas a red plus could be a couple of hundred years. But if there's a forest fire or illegal logging, that, that gets released. So it could be you know, 50 years or 200 years. Uh, so be careful which type of credits. I'm not the biggest fan of Corsia credits, which are, you know, uh, Elon Musk's credits. That's really where, you know, a big cash savior for Tesla were the credits, right? So those are the energy switch credits, the fuel switch credits. Uh, and they're trading that way. They're, they're kind of the low end of the pricing. Blue carbon credits are higher end. You get, you know, biochars trading at the higher side. Um, and, and I just think things like I'm staying away from science projects like direct air capture. It's still going to be like $200 per ton to do it efficiently. And the capex of building some of these CCUSs are 100 million for a small project that has about a six, seven year payback. I like my paybacks less than three years. So those are the type of different factors about cash is king. I want scale. I want to de-risk my political exposure risk. And I want diversity in the credits. So if I wanted a fire and forget solution, what would you recommend? I, I wanted something where I, I look into it. I say, this is my bet. And I put that on for the next 10 years. What's my carbon credit trade? So what I've done is I only own two stocks in the carbon trade. That's it just two. Uh, my largest position is Carbon Royalty Corp. 
and on that board is, you know, that's the superstar board. And then another one is Carbon Streaming Corp, open disclosure. I own 13% of the company, and that's listed uh, on the Canadian exchange, and it's attempting to list on the NASDAQ, I believe. Um, they've got about 80 million US in cash, no debt, and they've invested about 75 million into projects. Um, so those are the two bets that I'm betting on. And to me, my goal is to be the largest investor in what I believe will be the two big winners in the carbon royalty and streaming sector. Okay. So the obvious question I ask myself all the time is what don't I know? What could I get wrong in this? Where do you think if this goes wrong, how will it happen as a better? There's an an infinite number of things that can go wrong. Uh, For example, uh, let's say the SEC decides that there's a new rule that they don't really, they switch their mind on carbon credits. I don't see that the way it's going, but let's just say, they just say, screw it. You know, we don't need it anymore. The We're in such a bad recession. Let's just keep the jobs going and the companies, but that's not really the case. I think a big risk is the integrity of the credits are so based right now on third-party verifiers. So think of it this way. When I produce gold or copper at my mines, I produce a concentrate and I send it to the smelter. In the carbon world, it's a little bit different. I can follow a framework. I do everything I say I'm going to do. Then I apply to a third-party verifier and people like Vera or Gold Standard have had significant delays and issues with manpower and COVID because you got to go to the sites and it's been incredible. And then governments, a big issue that I see happening and that I'm protecting my investment from is, wait a second, you know, according to the uh, UNFCCC protocol, which is pretty close to Vera's, countries are going to say, well, we want a piece of this commodity, just like they want mineral tax, they want to tax the commodity, but we're waiting for this third-party verifier like Vera, and they're delaying this income, and I want that money now, and why the hell are we waiting for them when we can just do it internally? So you're going to see a lot of changes and evolution in the frameworks where someone like Avera could probably become uh, replaced or minimized in the market. I got nothing against Vera, but in the market, many people are unhappy with them because of the delays. Also, changing frameworks. So let's just say, Harry, you invest in a buddy of yours, and he used to work at the UN, and he's going to get this reforestation project, and they invest all this money. And then they realize that, oops, we're going to change the framework, like the baseline uh, or the leakage issues. And your economics change now too. So you really have to know what you're doing. And it's kind of like mining because you think you have this much gold. And then when you get underground, you go, uh-oh, it's not continuous. So you got to do the prep work, like why we do drilling and in, in, in mining and bulk samples to see the continuity. Is there a thrust fault or a dike that just ends the deposit? There's going to be changes like that in the framework and the verifiers. And we're still in like the first inning of this this sector. Like I would put it as if we were in the tech game, we're in, you know, 2002, you know, so it's very early days. So that makes it quite difficult to put a lot of money into this. If you think it's going to be like, this may well be the future, but there are so many risks and they are so hard to fully define. How big a bet can you take in this space? 
oh, the big funds are putting billions towards it. Uh, Brookfield, which is what I think some of the smartest money in Canada, they just raised a $15 billion fund oversubscribed. Mark Carney used to be the bank uh, chief of Canada and also the uh, Bank of England. Oh, yeah. He's now become the chair of that. Um, you know, River, uh, Carlisle Group, Riverstone, BlackRock, they're all putting in hundreds and hundreds and they're bidding against each other. So I would disagree with that. Some of these projects are billion dollar projects. Um, you're looking at, you know, depends what type of project and where, you know, if you're doing a cook stove project, you can do, you know, 30 million uh, tons over seven years of uh, prevention credits for $14 million. That's not a big project, but with that, you can do double cook stoves, you can do water filters, there's a lot of things you can do, ag plus projects. So as you're building these projects, you can, you know, build environmental, you know, mini uh, modular homes and also bring in new uh, farming techniques, you know, for citric plants in the area, do an offtake with Coca-Cola, you know, FOB. And, and there's many ways to make it bigger and bigger, it really comes down to the project. A blue carbon project, you know, is much more expensive than, you know, a red plus project or a seagrass project. So remember, there's 68 different types of credits. So there's no, um, it's the opposite right now. There's, this is as an investor, it's a field day because there's so many projects that are economic at current credit prices that are starving for cash. Uh, that's not the issue is where you deploy the cash. It's selecting the risks to the projects. Well, that's the thing. I mean, for example, my impression of Mr. Carney, who is an incredibly sharp man, um, I've only met him briefly because, you know, I spent some time as a hedge fund manager and he spent some time at Goldman's. But he's obviously a very sharp operator. But he didn't strike me as a kind of man that would deploy his own capital at risk. He's <laughs> too smart for that. So, and just because, uh, same with, say, BlackRock or even Brookfield, they can find profitable opportunities for them selling us a story. Doesn't necessarily mean these projects are going to make money for their investors just because big and big investment companies set these up. The, the thing about Carney is I noticed his interest in global warming and sustainability questions, even while he was at the Bank of England. He was making speeches in this space and prepping the ground for going into this area well before he left even the BOE. Um, he's a smart guy, and he's a kind of guy who can see the direction the wind is blowing in. So if he's picked this space, he's probably right. This is where uh, we are all going, one way or the other. But you pointed out that it's hard to pick winners because of all of the risks. And so I'm thinking if I, you know, as a retail investor, and you don't get much more retail than me, how do I evaluate what's a good trade and what's a bad trade and what's going to be a space filled with pros? I would start with people. Like, look, I'm one of the largest financiers and investors in the gold sector, and I own five gold stocks, and I've been to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of projects. So that's just what it takes to be successful in any sector. Same with uranium. I have two uranium stocks. Um, you know, so you can just, common sense, you can get rid of 90% of the assets. So I would, it, it's not easy, but nothing is. You're not going to get fit by just buying a gym membership. You actually got to go to the gym and work out. And no, the same thing with don't say that to me. <laughs> sadly, I'm, I'm living, sadly, I'm living proof of that. So 
But what you got to do, like find the guys that you can connect, go to the conferences, spend a little bit of time. It's easier now than ever because you got YouTube and you can have a 20-minute Zoom interview with someone that five years ago, nobody did that. Now it's no problem. You know, the CEO of Carbon Streaming, Justin Cochran's a really nice guy. Contact the office and get to know them. Or you can contact you know, even if you want to play it really simple, and you just say, you know what, I don't want to invest in companies and they're, they might have a high burn rate and I just don't like anyone and you want to buy an ETF, you can contact the guys at KRBN. They're all there. They're nice people. I've done it. Just pick up the phone and talk. Now, granted, you know, I have a little bit of a reputation and clout, so they may call me back earlier. So what? Call them three times, email them five times. So nothing is easy, but, you know, I would disagree with saying, you know, you can invest with Brookfield through their asset management and participate on their upside. So remember, yes, they're taking investors, but remember, it's their money too. Um, you look at what they're doing and, you know, why not participate with someone like Brookfield? They're very smart. They have connections that I don't have. And I would never bet against the guys at uh, Brookfield, but same thing. I just picked up the phone and called them and they called me back. So it's, in an area of ESG, and I know a lot of people think that that just means energy starved Germans, ESG is here to stay, regardless of the form, whether, you know, Texas fights BlackRock and Florida joins the fight. The companies have committed to this. And, and I'm not saying put 100% of your money in, but you should put some of your money towards this. And I think, you know, specifically the young audience that follows you in the crypto world, I think... All of the above need to be explored. And this is a very, very early sector that the, the frameworks and the governments and the exchanges and the ETFs, Harry, you're, you're a bond guy. What's the largest growth bond market in the last 10 years? The green energy sector, the green energy bonds. They are the largest growth by a huge margin. And that's not going to stop. So that's how, like, for example, does it make sense that Home Depot was a top 10 position in the green ETF? That makes no sense at all. Home Depot. Most of the stuff's made in China. You know, they have, but there was nothing else because they met the minimum criteria of the ESG. Things are going to improve and get harder and harder. They, they have to improve. Yeah, they have to improve because they're awful right now. I mean, the truth, we currently have this hybrid system where it's some form of capitalism, but not the capitalism I grew up with. Uh, I, and I'm not arguing that capitalism is inherently good or a very efficient system. But what you don't want is a capitalism mixed with central planning, where your central planning planners work in ESG funds and a, a, apply their own preferred ESG metrics, which determine how much capital something gets. You know, the best example of why this is potentially disastrous in terms of asset allocation is BTU. Like if you look at Peabody Coal, this stuff was about to go bust two, was it two years ago, two and a half years ago? The de I was looking at that bond at 40 cents in the dollar thinking to myself, you know, how bad can it be? Surely I get a West Virginia town thrown in with every bond or something. It's got, it's got to be something to this. I didn't buy it because I'm an idiot. It was a great trade and the stock has absolutely flown. There's not enough coal in the world now, even though coal is disastrous from the point of view of global warming because we don't have enough energy because we can't use Russian hydrocarbons and so forth and so on. Well, when you, when you talk about coal, things are 
there's no doubt it, it, it's an inverted market right now. But does it make sense that thermal coal traded at a premium to met coal? <laughs> no. no, but that's what happened. Um, and all I'm saying is what the world is now coming to accept, you know, what you're calling ESG or stakeholder capitalism is nothing new to the mining world. You know, you go build a mine. We had to go get the governments. We had the, you know, the Sierra clubs of the world come up. You had the indigenous community. You had the environmentalist groups. And we had to be able to incorporate all of that. And that's for us, it's nothing new. This is now becoming a new concept. And that's the new norm. This is the new reality. Whether you like it or not is irrelevant. So I just think that it's, you could, you know, a very dear friend of mine and a long-term partner is a guy named Doug Casey. And he goes, wow, man, it's all bullshit. I go, well, you also thought the internet was bullshit. But, you know, you you love the internet today. And you only got a cell phone two years ago. So you can bitch about it or you could be ahead of, like, as Canadians say, go to where the puck is going to go. You're a podcast listener. And this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. That's, I think that's exactly right. I personally think ESG is currently implemented is a disaster. But it doesn't matter. It's going to be implemented regardless. And it will probably improve, and it will probably do something approximating to what it's meant to do somewhere down the line. There's not a lo- an awful lot of point me standing on the sideways saying, you're doing it all wrong, lads. It, it doesn't it doesn't add anything, doesn't help anything, doesn't make me a dollar. So we move on. Um, you said you have two uranium stocks. Would you care to share which ones you have? So again, I love the royalty and streaming model. It's the only one in the uranium sector. We started it at my house. It's listed on the NASDAQ. It's called Uranium Royalty Corp. And um, it's a big company. It's you know done incredibly well. We got royalties on the biggest mines in, in North America. And then the other one's the largest U.S. Um, built. You know, It's got almost 300 million in cash, well north of a billion market cap called Uranium Energy Corp. And what is funny about all this is in 2013, uh, the CEO is my best friend. And I convinced them to say, do not do what everybody is doing. Everybody in the uranium market said, ooh, we're going to prove to all the bankers and the investors that we can make money at $40 a pound. So we're going to do a deal with the utility. And I said, that's the, like, I'm one of the few guys who had the benefit of visiting every single uranium mine in North America. Mm -hmm. And I said, that's the stupidest thing in the world. It takes you 10 years to permit this thing, specifically what I coined this phrase called WISER, warm, ISR, in situ recovery. So it's in Texas and Wyoming, hence why it's WISR. And I said, your best production comes from your first production platforms, and you're giving all that away. And at 40 bucks, you're not going to have any free cash flow. So Amir, in, in all of his brilliance, fought the market. And, you know, he's able to get the former Secretary of Energy, a great guy named Spencer Abraham, who was under oh, yeah. Bush, the chairman of the company. And they're now America's largest. They are the world's largest holder of uranium permitted in the ground, bigger than Cameco, you know, outside of Kazakhstan, you know, Kazataprom. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And, you know, everyone talked about Hillary Clinton and, you know, how they sold the uranium to Russia. It was Uranium Energy Corp that bought it back off the Russians at, you know, 10 cents on the dollar. And that's built, produced in America. So, look, I'm a fan of, you got to be a contrarian, but you got to buy things cheap. And when I was talking about it, going to build what they had, you know, when I was banging the drums on UEC, it would cost you 10 years and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. You could buy it for 20 cents on the dollar. It was a no-brainer. So that's what I'm saying with the gold sector. And I think the biggest upside wild card and the most hated sector, you, you got to understand, I come from the mining world. I've been mocked. I've been harassed. I've been, uh, uh, when I talk about carbon credits, people are like, oh, clearly he's smoking crack. It's, I've never no, in my career. No, carbon credit people generally take acid. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I like my, you know, that's my yeah. uh, sin. But, you know, uh, I've never had the negative pushback like I have on carbon credits. In my spidey sense, that means I'm probably. Yeah, on you're on the right track. Because somebody somewhere hates it and they don't even know why. Correct. Because it goes against their belief. Well, you don't get paid for your beliefs. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. So am I right in thinking, so you're long of U, 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 tri uh, quadruple U, is that the one or the, no? No, 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 no. U, so there's Uranium Royalty Corp, U-Roy, U-R-O-Y, uh -huh. that's on the NASDAQ, and UEC on the New York Stock Exchange. I do not own uh, quadruple U. That's a totally different company. There we go. Thank you. It shows, shows what little I know. Very interesting. And what what is your longer term prognosis now for so you you think uranium's done what it's going to do or we've or it's going to it's going to perform but perform So I just published I just yeah I just published a chart so if you look at the it's nowhere near anywhere near its historical highs both nominal uh, or inflation adjusted and uranium is very volatile but it's gone through its washout remember post Fukushima you, you had a Germany you had Japan you had all these countries say Eek. But, you know, Middle East, China, they went full bore. Yeah. We had all this supply. Plus, you had the nuclear warheads being downblended. And like I talked about in my book, the FX advantage. So Kazakhstan, when I first got into the business in what, 2001, I did a site visit. Kazakhstan didn't even produce a million pounds of uranium. They took American innovation technology, North American money investors, brought all these companies to Kazakhstan. And they were like, wow, look at these great, you know, uranium sandstone hosted deposits. And they said, this is going to be incredible. It was still called ISL back then. In Kazakhstan, it's in situ leaching. Anyways, they went from 1 million pounds to almost 60 million, 64 million pounds, which is about 40% of the global primary uranium production within 15 years. Like no commodity has ever gone like that parabolic. That's the equivalent of Russia and OPEC combined in the oil markets. Mm -hmm. That's Kazakhstan. But Nurzeltan is a genius. He was able to control and stay in power since what, the early 80s from the Soviet days. But he used the FX advantage. So as uranium prices was 60 bucks a pound, then Fukushima took it to 40, then it went all the way down to 17. Remember, they're producing in Tenge, the local currency in, yeah. in, in Kazakhstan. And as their currency went lower, as long as it went lower than the price of uranium was going lower, they were still fine because they're selling in US yeah. dollars. Yeah. And that was 
now that's all all that ex- excess supply is being absorbed because companies like the the Sprott Uranium Trust and Uranium Royalty Corp they've gone in and bought this excess supply and now the utilities who've had a field day for 10 years they've basically bent these producers over the barrel are now going oh crap what's really interesting harry is you know there's all these sanctions and biden talked tough on putin except uranium uranium is not included in the sanction list yeah you know i I looked at the situation and to me it looks very bullish for uranium we need baseload power. This is a source of it. We have new technologies which allow us to build smaller, less risky energy. But that energy. takes time too. Remember, your nuclear is the most feared thing. It'll still take 10 years to permit even a small modular reactor. Absolutely. But at the same time, we also have a geopolitically terrifying world. One in which, so we were, as you pointed out, just now, uh, dismantling old warheads and melting them down for alternative uses. Uh, probably not the right way to phrase that, now I think about it. Um, you want to hear a funny story that I talked about in the book? Go on. If America wanted to downblend their warheads, they don't have the infrastructure in place. It'd be probably $10 billion in 10 years of bureaucratic permitting. They'd have to send those nukes to, to Russia. Putin. <laughs> to 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 get <laughs> Fantastic. Isn't that hilarious? Yeah. Well, in a way. <laughs> so when, when you see these out of whack, nonsensical things, that's like a good thing going, hmm, maybe I want to investigate this more. There might be an opportunity here. And it was it was an incredible opportunity. Yeah. But I, I can't help but think uh, China is going to be building a whole bunch of warheads. Uh, the Russians will probably be upgrading warheads. The US has announced that it will be building its warheads. There's all sorts of uses for uranium, um, and they all all look to be expanding, admittedly at different rates. Um, I can see a bullish case. Just don't get caught up in the thorium angle. For years, people are like, Marin, you got to get into thorium. And I go, why? Because... With a nuclear reactor, what do you end up with? Plutonium. With thorium, even though thorium, it's kind of like the beta VHS, VHS one, but beta was better. Thorium is technically better, but you don't get the nuclear bomb as a byproduct. That's why thorium won't fly. Yeah, I remember reading somewhere as I was researching around this subject that the reason the United States uh, built those nuclear power stations, even though there were disposal problems and other, was because of the, the byproduct. We wanted the byproduct more than we wanted the electricity. And that's why we had to build what you might describe as less secure, less safe, less cheap uh, power facilities to create the plutonium that was used for other purposes. And uranium's everywhere. People forget that. Uranium is everywhere. It's in Texas. It's in Wyoming, the Athabasca Basin in Saskatchewan and Canada. You got some of the highest grade stuff. There's no shortage of uranium. And my thesis is, why do I want to go to Namibia where I'm going to have to compete with the Chinese SOEs that play on different rules than you? I can't play or compete against the Russians or the Chinese in Africa. And all I got to do is, you know, go into the Texas or Wyoming, and you got built, permitted facilities trading at 30 cents on the dollar with a rule in law, and you just got to wait. It was the easiest trade. Absolutely. Most of all, because the United States, like the Russians, like the Chinese, need to secure their supplies. What's the best way of securing a supply of uranium if you're the United States? Using your own uranium. 
That's the best way of knowing it's secure. The second best is Canada, right? Well, what's wild about that was in, I guess it was 1978, America was the largest producer of uranium. Still today, America is the largest consumer of uranium. It consumes about 25% of the world's uranium. But America was the largest producer, and it produced about 40 million pounds. Uh, in 2020, it produced less than 100,000 pounds. That's terrible. It's amazing. Right? So one in every 10 homes in America is powered by nukes, uh, nukes that are powered by Soviet invested infrastructure. One in five homes in America, roughly just under one in five, is powered by nuclear energy. But one in 10 comes from the former Soviet Union, the Cold War enemy sources. Even the American military is at the risk of depending on Kazakhstan fuel. They try to say, oh, we buy it from Canada. But what does Cameco do? It buys They're it. more of a trader right. than a producer. They just put it in a new barrel, made in Canada, and ship it down. Right? I am getting the impression that's happening in diesel as well, uh, that Russian oil is going to India. The Indians are refining it to diesel and then sending it back to the United States and Europe. And that's that's why oil prices are not even higher. Um, and I think there's an underlying lesson here. The underlying lesson is that Russia may have been a small economy in GDP terms, but it was heavily integrated into the global economy before. And that when we started this war, we didn't really factor in how heavily integrated some of these some of these markets are with Russia. And that's why we're seeing blowback in certain effects. So it's a working hypothesis. It may not be correct, but I, I suspect that... The, you know, where these problems won't go away while this war is going on. Baron, we couldn't even dig into really a quarter of the, some of the stuff we should have talked about in this because, you know, a trade's a trade. You need to know where you cut. You need to know where you're going to be wrong. Um, if people want to, to look up your thoughts on these in more detail, where should they look? Just go to my website, katusaresearch.com, and I publish a free weekly letter and it's also on YouTube. And uh, I just publish what I think is interesting because you live once and I only want to do, st I only work with people I like. I only do things I want to do and that I believe in. So the best part of, you know, getting to this point in my career is I kind of don't give a shit. I'm going to do what I want to do. So um, you're going to get the raw, uncut style. That's why I don't work at a bank or at a big fund. I just probably wouldn't survive to lunch. <laughs> I, I think you'd survive longer than you think because results matter a lot too and you've done very really well. But it's been a great pleasure speaking to you. I'm hoping we can do it again because this is uh, an education. I look forward to it. Stay well. All right, that's a wrap on the next big trade. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, head over to realvision.com for financial insight you won't find anywhere else. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lipsandads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com